Well, let's talk about God's wisdom. I'm going to pray, and then we will talk about the Lord's wisdom. We'll talk about what wisdom is, and we'll talk about how God has it. He's perfect in wisdom, and some ways we see that in God's works in his world. So let me ask God's blessing in our time. God, help me to speak of your wisdom in a way that is accurate, in a way that inspires trust. Work through me. Lord, spiritual fruit comes from you. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and patience, and so on, is not something that we can just make up or manufacture. It's a gift from you. I pray, God, m- make a lot of that tonight. Increase our trust in you. Increase our peace. Help us to rest in you. Help us to understand you better. So that, and, I, and I ask that the result of understanding you better would be a greater capacity to glorify you, a greater desire to glorify you, a greater willingness to glorify you. And I also ask for a greater actual glorification of you, that we would magnify your name, that we would exalt in you, that we would enjoy you, that we would delight to be with you, that we would delight in who you are, because you are perfect in wisdom. There is no flaw in your wisdom. There is no flaw in your love, There is no flaw in your goals. You are the flawless one. You are the perfect one, the matchless and unbounded one. Help us to understand you better tonight. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a big difference between being smart and being wise. Actually, before we dive in, if you lack a pen or something to write on. We have a plethora of pens to my left and to my right, to your right and to your left. Uh, We also have a bunch of note cards that you could use to take notes on. So if you are a copious note taker, you can take two, yay, even three note cards or more. If you write really tiny, you could just, one's fine. But uh, we do have pens and note cards up here for your note taking enjoyment and benefit. At no charge to you. No charge to you. All right. As I was saying, there is a big difference between being smart and being wise. Lots of really, really smart people are out there doing really, really dumb things. A friend of mine was driving on the highway once, and he saw a line of cars, and in front of this line of cars was a police car, Now, in a situation like that, what do you think the wise thing to do would be? It might be to get in line and just to wait and to be patient. Well, my friend, I I don't know what he was thinking. I'm not sure if he knew what he was thinking. He just got it in his mind that he wanted to show this police officer that he wasn't afraid of him. And so he drove past the police officer, and then the police officer proceeded to ask him to get onto the side of the... Anyway, he pulled him over. didn't really ask. He turned on his lights, did siren, whatever the police cars do. So he pulled him over and gave him a, a ticket, so he had to pay money, um, because he wanted to show this police officer that he just wasn't afraid of the officer. Uh, not, not displaying an abundance of common sense in that moment. Right? He, he was smart. He just didn't exercise a lot of wisdom in that situation. So just a word to you... Drive the speed limit, and if you see a police officer, you don't need to speed up and pass. It's just not 
free advice, don't do that. So book smart isn't the same as being wise. You can know a lot of things and be a fool. You can know a lot of things and make some really, really unwise decisions. So what is wisdom? Well, it's not knowledge. It includes that, but it's not the same as knowledge. Wisdom is knowing the best goals and the best way to reach those goals. So wisdom is knowing the best goals and knowing the best way to reach those goals. So your PhD in mathematics is not going to tell you what to do when you're in New York City and somebody tries to mug you. Or you might have a fine goal of not getting shot, but all of your mathematical proofs and all of your book knowledge isn't necessarily going to tell you how to get out of that situation to achieve your goal. Um, in the Bible, wisdom always has a moral component to it. Hey, wisdom carries the idea of goodness. Okay, so Hitler got a lot of stuff done, right? He had a lot of goals and achieved a lot of them, but they were awful goals. And the way he went about them was horrendous, right? So wisdom carries this idea of goodness, not just having goals and being able to accomplish them. Now, our wisdom is often flawed. Have you ever had wrong goals before? Like, what, what typically happens when you get into an argument with somebody? Right? Is, is there a point at which you stop caring about the other person and you start caring about something else more instead? Like, what, what do you sometimes in an argument start to care more about? You might, you might care more about winning the argument or looking good than, say, loving your neighbor as yourself. Right? Is winning an argument okay? Sure. Is that the best goal? No. No, it's not. So sometimes we have wrong goals. And, uh, but sometimes our goals are okay, but we just lack knowledge. Like, have you ever made a decision before that you have later regretted just because you didn't have all the facts? I'm sure we've all done that, right? And it's kind of like, um, I mean, please don't, don't take advantage of the ignorance of younger siblings or younger anybody, but like a, a small child might prefer to trade you two nickels for, um, uh, for five of your pennies, right? Or, or might be willing to trade you two quarters um, for three of your dimes, you know, right? Just because this kid is thinking, well, the more, the better, right? Well, who's getting the better deal? You are, because even though you have fewer coins, you've got more money, right? But the, the kid lacks the knowledge. He lacks all the facts to make a good decision in that situation. Well, God is not lacking in knowledge the way we are. God is not lacking in perfect goals the way we are sometimes, So what are God's goals? Um, God's goals are not to let a fallen world live comfortably. I'm not even convinced that God is under any obligation to bring the greatest amount of happiness to the greatest number of people. Sometimes you hear people say that. Well, God's goal ultimately is his own glory. 
Let's take a look in the scriptures at Romans 11. So at the very, very end of Romans 11, in verse 36... So inspired by God, the apostle writes, and when it says him, this is talking about God here. Um, so it, uh, Romans, New Testament, um, pretty soon after the Gospels in the book of Acts. Uh, if you've got one of these Bibles, it's on page 947. If you don't have one of these Bibles, it might still be on page 947, but no guarantees, all bets are off. So Romans 11.36 says, For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So God's goal ultimately in all things is his own glory. It's the exaltation of his name, his perfections. Um, And in in Colossians, he affirms this. It's then talking about the Son of God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So all things were made through Christ for Christ. Right? So this is the, the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the highest goal that could possibly exist. How, how could God have anything lower than that as his ultimate goal? God is not an idolater. Like we talked about last time, it is a perfection of God to love, I'd say also to exalt, that which is of greatest worth, which is himself. But that is also for our greatest good, because when God gives us himself, he hasn't diminished himself by exalting something else as of highest worth. So when God gives himself, um, he gives us the perfect infinite one who is of supreme value. So God has the best goal and God also has all knowledge to reach that goal. Right? Have you ever uh, in life between when you were born and now had a difference of opinion with your parents as to like what the best thing to do is in a particular situation? Now, I see some heads nodding. I mean it could be whether it's the cleanliness of your room that really is the difference of opinion or what time you should leave to go somewhere or maybe it's your bedtime, right? You, you might be thinking 11 o'clock is great and your parent might be thinking 9 o'clock is really a little late but we're going to allow it. So what happens when there's a difference of opinion about these kinds of things? So best case scenario, you say... Mom and Dad, I trust your wisdom, and I'm going to humbly submit to your decision because I know that it's best, and I really lack the knowledge and the best goals. Worst case scenario, you get into an argument and you get resentful about it. But so, with the Lord, okay, as long as to the to the degree, to the extent that our goals are different from God's goals, okay, to that extent, you are setting yourself up for frustration and. Uh, just to have difficulty in life, right? So A.W. Tozer says, so going back to, to what wisdom is, um, 
Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work towards predestined goals with flawless precision. So that is our God. God has all the facts. He knows everything instantly and effortlessly. He doesn't have to stop and think to try to remember stuff. He doesn't have to study for the test the way we do, and he doesn't forget stuff. It's all there right before him, whether it is past or present or future. God knows all things that are actually true. God knows all things that might have been true if circumstances were different. God knows what you would have done in different circumstances. So God has all knowledge. He has all knowledge of the actual future and all possible features. Um, so, and it says in Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. God is the only wise God. God is singular in wisdom. Our wisdom is flawed. It is limited. God's is perfect. And he has no limits to his wisdom. So we do have a measure of wisdom, but compared to God, God is the only wise God. He is the only one with wisdom. So imagine trying to explain geometry or algebra to a newborn baby. Right? I mean, that, that's not going to go well, really, for you or for the baby. Or the baby just has no concept for the properties of algebra, whether they're transitive, commutative, whatever it is. I mean, in, in trying to explain these things is just going to be an effort in futility. Well, the, the difference between your wisdom and a baby's wisdom is nothing compared to the difference between your wisdom and God's wisdom, or the wisest person's wisdom and God's wisdom. Right? So in that sense, comparatively, there is only one wise one, and it's God. So we're going to look at three ways that God's wisdom is displayed. It's displayed in creation. It's displayed in providence. I'll define what that is later. And it's displayed in salvation. So we're going to see God's wisdom displayed first in creation, second in what we call providence, And third, in salvation. So first, we see God's wisdom in creation. Turn with me to Psalm 104. This is going to be a bit of an extended passage, but we're going to read a lot of it. Uh, so, uh, just take your Bible and open it right to the middle, and you will probably be in the book of Psalms. If you're not in it, you're going to be really, really close to it. So, Psalm 104. He describes the things that God has made, and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his, uh, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that the earth might not again I'm sorry, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are, ab- are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So listen, listen to this. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And we see God's wisdom all over the place in creation. I mean, just imagine how it all fits together. You could think of the water cycle. Rain falls down. It waters plants, which grow to feed us and all sorts of other animals. Eventually, water evaporates, goes up into the sky, forms the clouds, it rains again. You can think about the rotation of the earth. We've got the day when wherever we are on the earth faces the sun and then it goes to night again. So we work during the day and we sleep at night. Think of owls that can twist their head like three quarters of the way around. Like Kangaroos can jump 27 feet. Um, I've read that great white sharks can sense blood three miles away. Interesting fact. The human body, you could think of the eyes and there are lenses there and how the pupil controls just how much light goes into the inner eye and how the images get processed and sent to the brain. The creation is so complex and yet it works so well. I mean, just imagine your, your nose. Like what, what if your nose was upside down? Like God could have made your nose that way, right? So your nostrils would be pointing up. But that'd be, I mean... Like, what would you do when it rains? It would be so uncomfortable. Like, rain would keep getting in your nose. You know, or like, even worse, if a bird was flying overhead, 
right? And like, yeah, I'm gross, you know? But the way God made your nose, those things don't happen. Uh, when you, you could look at the sky. There are these things in space called pulsars. They're, they're I mean, they emit like radiation really frequently. They, they think that these are objects in space that spin really, really fast. They're like 12 miles wide, and they spin really fast. And, and I mean like fast, fast. Like there was one where they would, it's around like 38,500 times every minute. It's pretty fast. You know, something that big. You know, imagine fly, like if you were, a, like as the crow flies, or pick another bird of your choice, if you were to go straight from here to the Fuquay Library, you go about another mile or so, that's about 12 miles, right? Something that big spinning that fast, it's amazing, right? This is, an evident, this is God's wisdom on display. Um, there is this star, um, just if you're interested, the Stevenson 2 DFK1 is the name of the star. I didn't name it. But the radius is like 2,150 times the sun's radius. If, if you plopped this thing in the middle of the solar system, it would engulf Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and Jupiter and, and Saturn. Like, huge. But in God's wisdom, it's just a variety of, of stars and heat and size and, um, and, and color. It's just incredible. So, and down to the, the other end of the spectrum of, of size, where you've got these things called quarks. They're, they're particles that are at least 10,000 times smaller than a proton. I mean, the scale of the universe, both in the small end and the, the large end, displays the Lord's wisdom. And we see that the goal here in all of this, like we talked about earlier in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, rulers or authorities. Okay, we could add, or stars or quarks, or noses, or eyes, or kangaroos. All things were created through him and for him. So even though there's a lot more space in the universe, a lot more void, than there is stuff, this is not a waste of space. Right? God didn't just create all of this to fill with stuff, but he created it for himself. And he can map out his universe however he wants, in whatever way he sees fit to bring him the most glory. So we see God's wisdom in creation. We also see God's wisdom in what we call providence. So providence means that God is actively, actively involved in his creation sustaining it and directing it according to his purposes. So I'll, I'll say that again. Providence means that God is actively involved in his creation, sustaining it and directing it according to his purposes. So the reason that you continue to exist is because God continues to sustain your existence. God upholds all things through the word of his power. And God directs all things. It says in Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a will, and God is directing everything in creation according to his plan. So just as an illustration, I, I realize that just in, in, in the thick of life, stuff happens that we don't like, and it is sometimes really difficult to exercise faith that God is actually acting in, in wisdom. Sometimes we just don't even think about it, but, but sometimes life is just really, really tough. But let's, let's take a look at the life of Joseph. We're just going to do a, a flyover here. Um, if you'd like to follow along, we'll skip around, starting in Genesis 37. So first book of the Bible, um, right at the beginning of your Bible. So in, in Genesis 37, it, it says that this, this guy named Joseph was 17 years old, and he had some dreams. Joseph also had some brothers. You probably have some brothers or sisters. And uh, so Joseph was on the younger end. I think he was like the second youngest, maybe. And in his dream, he was ruling over his brothers. Now, if you had a younger sibling come to you and said, I had this great dream, you're going to bow down to me someday. How, how would you respond to that? Like, would you, would you, oh, that's great. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, would that be like how you would naturally like, oh, this is, I was just hoping you would have this dream because I was really looking forward to like just serving you and doing whatever you want. Now, of course, loving your neighbor as yourself would mean setting aside your own interests for the interests of others. But that aside, right, that's probably not what you're hoping is going to happen when you get home if you have any brothers or sisters younger than you waiting at home for you. Well, Joseph's brothers weren't really crazy about this dream either. And uh, in fact, they decided that they were going to kill him. So they threw him into a pit. They were going to kill him. Instead, uh, one, of, one of the brothers was like, no, 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 let's not do this. So they decided not to kill him and said they just sold him into slavery, which you know, wasn't maybe all that much better, but they did anyway. Um, somebody bought him. He ended up in Egypt. Um, God was with him. Right? So actually, so the story thus far, it does not look like God is working out his wise purposes to bring this dream to pass. Right? Like if you're in a pit, you're probably not thinking, this is obvious, of course, our brothers are going to bow down to me. These brothers are actually like, ready to kill him or sell him into slavery. Uh, well, as, as God would have it, he was with Joseph. He made him successful there. And the guy that had bought him, his master, made him overseer of his whole house. Right? His, he, Joseph was managing things. Right? Okay, well, things are looking up. Well, at one point, uh, this, this master's wife... Um, became attracted to Joseph, and she wanted Joseph to have sex with her. And Joseph uh, wisely said, no, right? He's, he's not going to do that. Well, she accuses him of trying to rape her. The master, understandably, gets upset, throws Joseph in prison. Okay, so now things are not looking so good anymore, right? And... Um, you know, just from prison, again, you're not thinking like, oh, well, obviously, this is how God is going to bring his purposes to pass. Um, well, God was with Joseph again, and the keeper of the prison um, gave Joseph charge. He gave him some responsibilities. And uh, so Joseph, again, 
was, was given some more flexibility in his situation, even though it wasn't great. Well, one day, uh, two of Pharaoh's servants, Pharaoh's like the king of Egypt, uh, were, they were in prison and they had some dreams and Joseph interpreted them. Um, one of the prisoners ended up going to get killed, uh, which wasn't so good for him, but the other one got freed. So Joseph predicted that he would get freed and would be restored to the king's service. Right? And it happened, just like Joseph interpreted. And before the guy went out of prison, Joseph was like, hey, when you get out, would you just mention me to the king, to Pharaoh, because I didn't do anything to be here, right? I'm not, like, this is, I, I shouldn't be here in prison. Like, would you just go, go mention my name to the king, right? And I, his hope is probably that he would get him out. Well, the guy forgot. It's like, oh, whoops. You know, like, you know, thanks for, thanks for predicting that I get out of here, and I'm, I'm just not going to remember that you're in prison. Uh, so at some point later, Pharaoh had some bad dreams, wanted somebody to interpret, the servant finally remembered, oh, there was this guy that interpreted dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh ends up making Joseph the second most powerful in all of Egypt. You know how long it took between the dreams and rising to power in Egypt? 13 years. So Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. 13 years of being uh, threatened by your brothers and then sold into slavery and then accused of something that you didn't do and then being in prison again, you know, like just, well, I guess he was only in prison once, but, and then forgotten about, right? So, um, but God was at work. Psalm 33 says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And God's purpose here was to save a bunch of lives. There was a famine that eventually hit Egypt. And Joseph knew about it ahead of time because he interpreted some dreams that Pharaoh had. So Joseph was able to store up some food and save a ton of people's lives in Egypt and his family as well. So even though his brothers intended this situation for evil, God intended it for good. And God brought Joseph through this, I mean, in sort of in his, his secret will, his secret counsel, um, to save lives. So we can see God's, God working out his wise purposes and how he governs his creation. So we've seen God's wisdom in creation, we've seen it in God's providence. We also see it in salvation. Uh, well, how do we do this? Well, for starters, most of you are probably not of Jewish descent. Probably. I mean, some of you might be, right? Either in part or in whole, but um, just the very fact that you are now part of God's people is an evidence of God's wisdom. Uh, because God chose Israel to be his special people. And if you wanted to be part of God's people, you would attach yourself to the nation of Israel. Well, at some point, they disobeyed God. And um, let's read uh, back in Romans 11. We're going to jump to the passage we were in earlier.
Uh, so starting in, in verse 30, so Romans 11, verse 30. For, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sprinkle some commentary in here. So make sure you have your Bible open so you can tell the difference between what I'm saying and what God's saying here. So uh, verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, so that these Gentiles didn't know God, weren't living for God, but have now received mercy because of their, that is Israel's, disobedience. Okay, so Israel was disobedient, and God showed mercy on the Gentiles. So Gentiles are just people that aren't, aren't Jews, weren't part of Israel. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Okay, so Israel was disobedient. God opened the doors of salvation to everybody. Right? Israel became jealous of people outside of Israel who were now being showed God's favor. And well, God showed mercy on the Gentiles. So then God would turn around and show mercy on, on Jews. Right? And, and, and he says, For God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And, and then he jumps right into saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So just the very fact that you are saved if you've placed your trust in Christ is, is evidence of God's wisdom in opening up salvation to people that weren't part of the nation of Israel. And we also see God's wisdom and salvation in figuring out a way to be just and forgiving at the same time. If, if somebody broke into your house and stole your, your most prized possession, I don't know what it is for you. It could be a guitar, it could be a book, it could be, I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. But imagine somebody broke into your house, stole it, and then went to sell it for drug money. And the police catch the person that broke into your house, but isn't able to get your possession back. And the person goes to court, and the judge was like, you know, we all make mistakes. Don't worry about it. Let's the person go. Right? Would you be okay with that? Probably not. You would be, no! Right? Where is the justice in this? Well, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How could God possibly forgive you? Well, he did it by taking on our human nature and dying the death that we deserved, at least in his human nature, dying the death that we deserved. In his divine nature, he, it's not like he stopped being God at any point. And it, it says in Romans 3 that it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But what wisdom? We see God in his wisdom in creation and providence and salvation. Um, but for our sake, it's good that God is not only wise, but all-powerful. If you had somebody that was all-powerful but not wise, that would be terrifying. If you had somebody that was all-wise but not all-powerful, it would be kind of pathetic. But God is both. And so as God works in your life, you can place your full confidence that God knows what is best and that God is working out what is best. No matter how painful or pleasant your circumstances are, 
God knows what he's doing, and you can give him control of your life. So seek to grow in your trust of the Lord by studying who he is, by asking him to give you wisdom, and by praying that God would increase your trust in him. So seek to grow in your trust of God by studying his character, studying who he is, um, by reading his word, and by asking for his wisdom. We're going to break up into our discussion groups. Uh, and just once again, um, ninth and 10th grade boys will be with uh, Mr. Liggett up to the front on your left. Mr. Garner will take the 11th grade boys in the middle on your left. Mr. Catalano, 12th grade boys in the back left. Mrs. Ayersman, 9th and 10th grade girls on the front right. Mrs. Gruden, middle right, 11th grade girls. And then Mrs. Walker will be with the 12th grade girls on the back right. All right? Let's go ahead and split up. And in about 10, 15 minutes, we'll break to do the snacks. <laughs>